Hi, uh, welcome. Uh, this is Revealing the Truth, uh, episode two. Originally speaking, I had recorded this particular episode um, on the 12th of February because of me recording it on, I think, the wrong app. Um, I'm having to bite the bullet and redo this, and I'm hoping it's going to be better than what I initially had recorded. Um, so thank you um, all for your patience and um, waiting for me to uh, complete the second one and actually post it and everything. Um, one of the things that I talked about and um, whenever I did the first one, I was talking about Dr. Dispenza's brain heart coherence um, based on his book, Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. We're still talking about the human mind this time. We're talking about some different stuff, um, however. Um, one of the things that is really, really interesting to me is something that came out of the Cold War era uh, towards the end of the 1940s, 1950s. It was something called remote viewing. And the Soviets, during this time, got really interested in psychic phenomena in the human mind. And I dare say a lot of countries are probably very interested in that particular uh, phenomenon. Psychic ability with the human mind will, um, and they use it in something called remote viewing. Remote viewing, essentially speaking, is not using any kind of satellite information or any kind of, you know, computer technology or, you know, um, uh, intel or whatever. It deals nothing more with the human mind. They're given a certain specific target that they're looking for, you know, whether it's a person or hostages or um, location of weapons or whatever you think you get, you know, that somebody might be looking for in a military situation. And the first, well, at, at the end of 1940s, um, there was something called Operation Paperclip. Operation Paperclip at the time was dealing with the U.S. government, but I'm pretty sure some of the uh, scientists uh, from the uh, Nazi era also went over to uh, Russia. Henceforth, uh, the kind of divide of the um, scientists. And at the time, Nazi scientists were some of the most technologically advanced scientists on the planet. I mean, these guys were really not to sit there and say, you know, hey, I'm you know in the Nazism or something like that. No, these guys really, they were really pushing the boundaries of what science can be. At the time, when we brought them over here to the U.S., um, we were, the space race was underway. We wanted to be the first to put a man on the moon. And for those of you who believe that we did, now mind you, that particular aspect is something that might be in a later podcast, just not this particular podcast episode. Um, the first time that we ever, it was ever documented, I should say, um, to be used here on U.S. soil was in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, at the military base. Um General Joseph McMonagall headed up the Stargate program. And yes, we're talking about this. That's the name of the program. It's not based on the TV show or the movie, um, which nonetheless, those are pretty cool too. But anyways, it was used on some big high-profile stuff. It really got underway. Like I said, started in 75. It ended in 1995, according to the uh, research. And in the 1980s, it really blossomed. Um, really took a you know like a whole life of its own, if you would. They uh, used it 
on things like Panama, uh, the uh, situation with Noriega, the war on drugs, etc. And for those of us who grew up in the night, you know, around the 1980s, we remember hearing that every time we turned around on the news. You know, back then we didn't have, you know, things like 24-hour news or every, a computer in every household or internet or anything like that. You know, we just had usually like, honestly, I think it was like three or four news stations. Um, yeah, so we never considered, hey, they're using, you know, psychic spies to be able to do this. In college, I took a... Um, a criminal justice course. And I wrote a paper. My argument for this paper, mind you, it was a criminal justice course, um, was would remote viewing be admissible in a court of law? I mean, think about it. Where This is before any of us heard the name Edward Snowden and understood that, you know, we're all being monitored and spied upon or tracked by our cell phones or by our... Um, you know, laptop computers or credit card usages or whatever it happens to be. I mean, no matter how you dice up these days, we're being monitored. You know, good luck on privacy. But, um, you know, but that was before we, uh, a lot of us knew who Snowden was and what was really happening. You know, so my argument was, would remote viewing be an admissible aspect in a court of law? I mean, I understand the idea of military applications, you know, for remote viewing. Um there's always a whole other level of, you know, how the courts and how the military does things. Um, but in, like, a court of law, if you're using it to track down serial killers or serial rapists or missing persons or whatever. But, in my, mind you, police departments have been using psychics for missing person cases, you know, murder cases for years. But I don't know if it's so much, you know, that that's considered remote viewing. And remote viewing is basically them sitting there in this room completely isolated from anything. I mean, they're they're not actually at, like, you know, the site of the missile or the missing person or whatever. They're in a room, and they're being given a certain target, and they're told to draw what the target looks like it might be or where it looks like it might be. And many times they can give things like longitude and latitude coordinates, you know, which is really cool. But, um... If they're using it like in say, you know, like court cases or things like that, how would that evidence be admissible in a court of law? And mind you, it would be dependent upon which state you go to or uh, which jurisdiction or, you know, because every jurisdiction, every state has different, you know, I guess you could say court systems to some degree, you know, different types of legalities. Um, <clears throat> but it's it's very interesting because then you guys start wondering how would that change up the make of our legal system? Where how would that change up, um, you know, a lot of things. I think, I think that's deeply, you know, fascinating, basically, you know, if we can really do this. And, I mean, think about it. We, we use kind of a mental adherence in a lot of ways when we're in, in you know, I guess you say romantic relationships where – you know, we have our partner and we're uh, learning everything that we can about them. And then so, for instance, if they come home and they've had a really bad day at work, we can tell it by a lot of factors. It could be the look on their face, but it could be, I mean, they may not even need to like open their mouth and verbally say, hey, I've had a bad day. Um, 
you know, it's just there. It's something in their aura or something in their, you know, just their mannerisms or whatever it happens to be. But it's a form, I mean, a minor form of telepathic communication. You know, speaking without actually using your mouth to speak. And I always thought it was interesting that we both, all of us on average, have two ears and one mouth, which means we should, you know, listen more than we actually speak at times. There's an organization, um, I don't say organization, let me phrase that. There is, well, I guess organization might apply. Um, it's called the Rhines, R-H-I-N-E-S, Research Center of Paranormal Psychology and Investigations. And um, it's in Durham, North Carolina. It's part of Duke University. And they really do test things like telepathy, telekinesis, you know, ESP. Um, and telekinesis is like moving in, you know, things like a uh, spoon with your mind. You know, think if you remember that kid in the Matrix movie, you just remember he's bending his, you know, the spoon with his mind, but then he has to realize, hey, there is no spoon. Okay, it's that's a whole nother level um, of what, um, you know, what I'm talking about. So it's kind of like the illusion that there is a spoon in the first place. Meanwhile, you're actually bending the spoon. But it's, I guess you could say in a lot of ways, you know, there are things in life that can totally be an illusion. Uh, maybe the um, the illusion that you need, um, you need this in order to be happy, you know, or, <clears throat> or this in order to be fulfilled in life. Maybe that's just an illusion. But um, that's a whole other level of discussion there. Um, not to get sidetracked. But yeah, at the Rhines Research Center, they really test things like ESP and things of that nature. One of the proponents, I mean, obviously J.B. Ryan, who set up the Rhines Research Center of Parapsychology, was really into it. I mean, he was really inspired by... Um, the godfather of parapsychology, which is Carl Jung. And Jung is J-U-N-G, for anybody who's wanting to look at him up. Um, he was uh, Austrian. He was one of Sigmund Freud's protégés. Um, he believed that, you know, that we were born with a conscious mind and a unconscious mind. And in order to get to the unconscious mind, I mean, obviously, you know, Sigmund Freud came up with the idea of well, if you want to get somebody to talk, the best way is like, you know, um, illicit drugs or alcohol, you know, to get them to speak, you know, like a truth serum. And Carl Jung believed that we were born with the dreams and the aspirations of our ancestors. He um, believed that there was an unconscious motivation for why we do things the way that we do. And it wasn't just, hey, my mom and my dad, you know, taught me how to do this, so I'm doing this. And there's, it's much more to it than that. It's a lot deeper. Um, it deals, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like, well, first and foremost, Carl Jung believed heavily in past lives and reincarnation. And, I'm not saying that there isn't such thing as reincarnation. I'm not here to thrust um, 
the belief down your throat whenever you're listening to the podcast. I am here, however, to say that there, Carl Jung actually acquired evidence of past lives, or what he perceived as being evidence of past lives, where you know people would behave and act, um, particularly when they were asleep, in an unconscious level where they might know a language that they weren't raised around and that they don't speak consciously, but you know, subconsciously or unconsciously, they're able to really, you know, talk in a different language or a different dialect that, you know, I'm like, how do you, how do you begin to explain that? You know, it, it, I mean, and, well, anyways, so, um, this is Carl Jung and, he also believed in the idea of synchronicity. And synchronicity deals with what a lot of people would consider, uh, consider to be uh, coincidences. And I've always said coincidences are so coincidental, why do they feel so contrived often? You know, like there's a greater force at work there. I, um, I think that's something to truly, like, really start to notice in society and life. Like, you know... Well, I was just thinking about you. I was just about to call you and you called me or or something to that effect. And we do it every day. I mean, think about it. I mean, a lot of us don't even notice that we do it. But it happens quite often, I might add. So, I mean, are we communicating telepathically? I mean, that goes back into the whole question. Many times over, I think that we are. We don't realize it. I mean, we think, oh, that's just something out of a science fiction movie. Really, where do you think those science fiction movies get their ideas from? Where do you think the, you know, storytellers of a lot of these TV shows or movies derive some of their inspiration? I remember, you know, years ago hearing about um, Wes Craven, you know, that created the uh, infamous Nightmare on Elm Street series. And he was based, he said that he based the um, what the character of Freddy Krueger could actually do on some... Um, experiences that he had heard about uh, and read about rather uh, from Africa where people were actually able to enter other people's dreams which is where he based the character of Freddy Krueger on and it's based on I would say based on you know either there's a connection or there's certain you know um, I mean mind you everything is connected it just depends on to what degree and what level you know it's connected to but it's one of the things where you want to sit there and say okay if there's that possibility of coming into somebody's dreams and obviously doing what Freddy does in the you know movies and everything, is there a way to also go and heal them and you know help them and you know and and communicate with them without actually you know a text message or picking up the phone? I I completely agree that there is a potentiality of doing that. I mean, you know, so. For instance, whenever somebody at the Rhines Research Center is testing something like extrasensory perception and they're laying out all these different cards, you know, to see if, everybody, you know, the cards correlate with another person's cards. And I think it's almost like either A, they're telepathically communicating, or B, one is actually able to put, you know, the thoughts of those cards into um, the other person's head. Either way, that's a form of telepathic communication. 
So Carl Jung, whenever he was researching things, he was always looking into these things. As it turns out, towards the end of his life, Sigmund Freud was leaning more towards Carl Jung. You know, he was, Sigmund Freud was, I know a lot of people want to say Sigmund Freud was sexist, but mind you, he grew up in a sexist time. And I don't subscribe to a lot of his ideas. But I do think that there's something to it. Um, you know, as far as, you know, dealing with the mind and behavior and everything else. I mean, why do we, why do we gravitate towards the things that we gravitate towards? And we choose some of the same style of relationships or same type of friends or same jobs, for instance. Why do we keep gravitating towards all that? You have to stop and think, there might be an unconscious motivation there. Maybe it's, well, this type of relationship feels right to me, or this kind of job feels comfortable to me. It could be as simple as that, or it could be, you know, well, this is what my mom and my dad want me to have. Or, or I mean, it, it could be anything instilled in us by society. I mean, and so at, at times it's almost like, it makes us think sometimes, are our thoughts, are the are our thoughts all that we have? Are our thoughts really ours? Or is it something else? Or you know, or is it a combination of everything? You know, whether it's our thoughts, their thoughts, what this person wants or what society wants, or whatever it happens to be, it could be a combination of all of it. It's just something to consider. Um, whenever the um, uh, General Joseph Bonacle was um, directing, I mean, he wasn't just somebody who was a remote viewer himself. He actually trained other military personnel how to do this. I'm wondering if that's where it ended. I mean, they said the program stopped in 1995, but, you know, sometimes programs get a new name just to keep it going. There's always that. It really is fascinating what the human mind can do. I mean, mind you, the human mind can play tricks on you. Um, one of the things about Dr. Joseph Spence's book, if you ever see the actual cover of it, it actually has a, a kind of a, a profile, side profile of a person's mind that has like all these mazes that are in the brain. And the mind can be a lot like that. I mean, sometimes it takes you down avenues that you really just wish that it didn't do, which is where things like you know anxiety derive from or depression or whatever it is. And our minds are coming with all sorts of scenarios of things that may or may not be accurate. Uh, our perception at times is merely just exactly that. Our perception doesn't mean that, hey, this is the real truth. Mind you, truth is a subjective thing. It always has been and always will be. Um, there's a um, a uh, guy named Dr. Stephen Greer. And I think this guy is really interesting. He, um, he basically, um, he's from Charlotte. And he is actually a medical doctor. But he has become one of the most foremost experts in the entire world on UFOlogy. And he says that he has communicated with extraterrestrials 
through simple meditation. And that goes into, I believe that we all have that capability. I've, I've heard about some research that they've done where, you know, once you're, I mean, you have a whole giant group of people meditating. And in certain cities, how the crime rate went down or, you know, there were, you know, there were no muggings or stabbings or murders or whatever based on all these people meditating and putting out that kind of frequency, that kind of energy of positive healing and growth. The interesting thing about Dr. Stephen Greer um, is that one of the things that was that I noticed is that he said that military um, personnel were very upset about him being able to communicate with extraterrestrials without their expressed permission. The truth is no government, no agency really can truly have jurisdiction over the truth. And the truth always has that energy that it wants to be known. It's just a matter of when and where. Um, with Carl Jung being into things like synchronicity, he understood that there are all these connections and we got to figure it out how they are connected and how how is this connected to that or et cetera, et cetera. Well, this goes into um, quantum physics, doesn't it? This goes into you know, reading body language or, you know, being able to tell, you know, if somebody's lying or things like that, where, you know, you could say, well, the person is saying this, but their thoughts are really saying differently, and I'm seeing into that. You know, it's, I find that deeply fascinating, to say the least, um, And eventually, I think we're going to get to a time where, you know, telepathy and ESP are not considered so much as paranormal as it is, this is what people are able to do. And if you start to really hone in your own your craft, if you would, you know, you would be amazed at the things that you would actually, you know, learn about somebody. And it could be, you know, hey, this person's a really good bank keeper or bookkeeper, rather, or this person's a really good artist, but they don't necessarily express it. But my God, if I gave them a paintbrush and a canvas, they'd be great. So whenever we're talking about, you know, looking at things, you know, just taking a step back, really assessing the potentialities and the possibilities of what the brain and the mind can do it's infinite. I mean, we still probably know more about the surface of Mars than we do the human brain. You know, we, I mean, the human brain is kind of like the oceans of the Earth, where we know a heck of a lot less about the oceans than we do, say, our own, um, our own household. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of avenues that we have yet to explore, and I sincerely hope that people really start to really contemplate the potentialities of what you can do with the human mind to be able to, you know, 
dream something up and really put out that energy to hopefully achieve it and have it there. And that goes into the idea of gratitude and being constantly grateful for each and every moment for not taking anything for granted. Um, for really putting out the energy that you would like to have reciprocated, honestly. Thank you so much for joining me on my second podcast episode. Um, I'm getting ready to upload this, and I'm getting ready to start on the third one here. Thank you so much.